Welcome back to Venture Studio. This is part two of our interview series with Ed Sim of Bold Start Ventures. For part one and all of our other episodes, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and now Google Play. And make sure you follow us on Twitter at Venture Studio. And now without further ado, let's get to part two with Ed Sim. In the office, baby. Let's talk about 2017 and beyond. You've written some great posts about you know, what's going to go down in enterprise tech for the coming year. Give us your high-level thoughts on, on what you see coming. Sure, yeah. I'll tell you one thing. So I, I was just with a buddy of mine from a prior startup. <laughs> he is uh, the head of a huge infrastructure software company selling you know, over $100 million of software to the big banks. And um, I, I catch up with him every three or four months. And I remember a couple years ago, I asked him, is anyone talking about containers or microservices or anything he goes they don't care <laughs> they don't really care at all and i asked him like uh, last week and i said what are people saying he's like well you know i don't want to really sell infrastructure per se what i'm trying to sell is to the head head of business right the the, the ceo i just kind of go from a top-down perspective the stock market's telling these ceos don't get amazon that was the same thing that was said years ago and, and don't get amazon might mean don't get Amazon for retail, but also for banks, right? The, the, the banking future is changing. Like people don't really show up at branches anymore. How do I reinvent our relationship with the customer? And it sounds like complete BS, right? It sounds like digital innovation and blah, blah, blah. But the reality of it is these large banks are thinking about it. And some of the more progressive ones are banks like Capital One, right? I mean, who are investing a ton in technology. So why am I bringing this up? This leads towards... In order to move very, very fast and be agile and be very cost effective, you've got to have cloud infrastructure. And I'm not saying everyone's moving to the public cloud. In fact, very few have. Uh, maybe they have their developer resources on there, but they do have hybrid cloud. And they're using microservices now for their new applications. They're using containers. So there's this whole kind of replatforming happening in, 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 uh, in corporate America right now, starting slowly. So we've been investing a lot kind of in some of those kind of areas. What happens? as legacy apps kind of move from, you know, existing kind of infrastructure to new infrastructure. What happens when all of a sudden one monolithic application becomes a thousand sharded pieces, right? So you can security policy layers over that. You're going to, what happens when open source, for example, is 60% of your code pulling down reused third-party components and modules? Well, someone's going to have to scan that for security issues, right? So we've been investing in and around understanding what happens as a world replatforms. Existing startups today can actually do that, but we're looking at kind of the next phase. And, um, you know, companies like SNYK, S-N-Y-K.io, uh, the founder is a repeat founder, just an amazing friend. His name is Guy Picharni. He uh, was chief architect of one of the first um, web app firewalls called Sanctum, which sold to watch fire security, which became part of IBM. He then started a new company to accelerate um, the delivery of web pages to mobile and sold that to Akamai. And he became one of the two CTOs of Akamai. So about two years ago, he kept telling me, he's like, Ed, open source is just growing and growing and growing. And there's no developer-friendly way to help them secure their third-party components and modules. That's what I want to do. And I got to tell you, he was pushing a rock up a hill for quite a while, right? He was content marketing. He was getting out into the world. And all of a sudden, over the last three months, his bottom-up model, where you can actually just kind of authenticate through Git or whatever your repository is, 
you know, every every other day we're getting a new Fortune 1000 company reaching out and saying, hey, 10 of our folks are using this. Uh, let's talk about a master services contract. But, you know, it was, it, it was it was scary for the first first while. But the point is, is one of our thesis is the corporate world is going to replatform um, and continue to do so. I, I put out a weekly newsletter just um, on, on my blog, Beyond VC. So if you go to digest.beyondvc.com, I kind of pull out five or six interesting articles that I read and I just put a little note or two on it. And one article came out about uh, what JP Morgan was doing. I think they have 20, 30,000 developers and how they were kind of replatforming their whole architecture. So I'm fascinated about that because I'm seeing it play out in our portfolio companies. So I think that's going to be a big, big trend moving forward. In that arena, it, it kind of builds on something that Elliot was talking about when he was on last year. He's talking about the developer-driven enterprise and you know how like these developers now have so much stroke in these old institutions, right? Where they're like, they're, they'll just find stuff, download stuff on their own. And then, like you just said, 10 of them will be using it. And suddenly it becomes a thing in, in the bank or wherever the hell they are. What's the landscape like when these, you know, as you said, the monolithic IT infrastructure evaporates or, or breaks up into a thousand shards and yeah. it's all hundreds of different little containers and apps and all that. What, what the hell is going on in that world? <laughs> well, it's kind of hard to conceive of, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, I think it's pretty funny. I, I put I put up a post the other day. I call it "Developer Love uh, Versus Revenue," right? And I think um, there's this um, I don't know this this magical thing that people believe that hey, you get developers on board, you can grow a big business. The reality of it is, developers really don't have budget. Right. So so what what you're really doing is getting IT to buy into it by having the, the having the developers kind of love, 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 love your product. What you need to do is once you're in an organization is find out who has the budget. Right. Who is the buyer of that? Because, you know, you're not going to build a big business just kind of trying to get developer budgets. I mean, that, it's it, it's it's not going to happen. So I think that's kind of the one understanding that you need to make. What's happening on the inside? I can tell you just from, you know, I was just with some, another person yesterday from a large, you know, top five bank. Um, and and they're walking me through how they kind of took um, and put everything on to like, you know, 10 different data centers and how they're use, putting some stuff in the public cloud and some stuff in the private cloud. And we were, we were talking about vendor lock-in on AWS or Azure and how there's a need to kind of be able to um, um, deploy to both or have redundancy in both in case, for example, there's that outage. Um, and so they're saving real money. And, and, and he said, look, I think he quoted saying that we're doing 600% kind of more in terms of, of development over the last five years at a 20% reduced cost. So, so think about that, order of magnitude. Six times more, but costing him 20, 20% less because he replatformed and put a lot of it and using more agile technologies, created more streamlined workflow. The big missing part though, that many people forget about is you can't just say, I'm going to go and kind of do this. There's a cultural shift. It, it takes like a year of training folks and teaching them how to do continuous integration, continuous development of how to move faster, of how to build applications in a different way. So it's not just the money. There's a whole cultural, people have to buy in culturally. It has to start at the top. It has to start with the CEO saying, I want to do this. It has to start with, you know, the CIO, the CTO, I want to do this. So it has to be a top-down mandate. Um, you know, for a company for this to happen. Let me ask about the talent side of things. I see so many students coming out of the university, right? And, 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 and they can code and, you know, they're, they're, they're taken up by the allure of the, the startup world, of course. You know, that's in the air now. And it's been in the air for about, you know, six, seven, eight years. How do the 
how do these big institutions attract the the top talent? Is it just money, or is this sort of Googleization of IT and 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 this new more agile approach? Is that in itself becoming more interesting to talented developers. I, I learned this from uh, Chris Dixon and a few other people. They're like, always look at the talent. Where's the talent going? Yeah, that, that is absolutely brilliant. So when we, by the way, all the themes we came up with in 2010 are the same themes. They're just big enough buckets, you know, as, as we talked about earlier. So it was Googleization of IT, right? The, the, the ability and thought of uh, an enterprise wanting to manage their infrastructure like Google, deploy like Google, and and create apps um, uh, scalable and as quickly as Google, right? So part of the replatforming also involves that. It's how to retain talent, find talent. So that, that's you are spot on with that perspective there. Um, um, because, you know, all the new folks want to be up to date on the newer technologies. They don't want to be sitting in COBOL <laughs> or Fortran or, or whatever it is, right? So so I, I, that's definitely a big part of that. And then, you know, there's these innovation centers, right? People say, you know, you don't want to really be stuck in an innovation center when you're selling. But, you know, some innovation centers are better than others. But the point of the matter is they need to do banks and large insurance companies need to do something um, to retain and recruit talent, right? And, and a startup isn't for my partner uh, Jeff likes to say a startup isn't for everyone, right? So, so you know there are other ways to kind of build new technology without taking all the risk of a startup. Very interesting. You know, let's hit security. I've been writing a lot about security. It's obviously, as you just said, it's like the next massive frontier. I mean, it just uh, what you just told me about what's happening to the splitting a part of that that monolithic infrastructure. I mean, security's got to be, you know, a massive nightmare coming at people. How are we going to harness all this stuff, you know, without destroying these these large companies? Well, you know, I, I, I made my first security investment in 2001, co-investment with Cisco in a company called NetForensics, which was one of the first SIM vendors. We sat on top and gathered all the data from your firewalls and intrusion detection systems and whatnot and helped you make um, uh, turn the signal from noise, right? And and so they, they went on and kind of, uh, you know, built a pretty sizable business. And the only point I'm making is that, so I watched, and back then, you talked about security to a CTRC, you're like, ah, you know, go to that back room, right? You know, check it's been around for four or five years. Security was like not even interesting. It wasn't as, it was like, stop selling me FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And so fast forward, I was joking. We, we had, a, um, we're out at RSA, about four or five of our companies were out there. I hosted a dinner Sunday night before RSA kicked off with, you know, like 24 folks from uh, a few portfolio companies, from strategics like, you know, Splunk and Palo Alto Networks and Cisco. And for the folks that have been in the security industry for a while, we're joking that we said security is sexy again. It's, it's, it's all of a sudden, we're kind of the sexy, uh, uh, you know, thought in, in the room, right? Because now it's, be, it's getting board level visibility now. It is. And there's real penalties kind of being associated with this, right? And so that's one thing that that, that kind of, um, it, it's top of mind, it's getting board level visibility. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you about the problems, a couple problems. One is, you know, banks like JP Morgan spend $500 million a year in security, and yet they don't still feel secure, right? So kind of what gives right there, right? And kind of there's a lot to think and unpack behind that. The other thing is that I think there are a lot of, uh, there's way too much money invested in there. I mean, there's a lot of startups doing point products. I mean, there's $3 billion went into kind of security startups in 2016, two and a half and in 2015, there's going to be a massive shakeout, right? And then Palo Alto Networks just got hammered the other day that they missed their numbers. 
and they dropped about 22% uh, in trading. I mean, you know, but still, I mean, it's still doing a, a ton of revenue. But so there's this thing where security is kind of white hot. Large companies, uh, it's one of the few areas where large companies will, will find innovative startups to kind of block the next attack vector. Yet, there are very few large public security companies out there, right? I mean, there's like five, six, seven, right? So it, it's a really, really interesting thing in, in terms of looking at that market. And I think there's going to be a lot of carnage, frankly, coming out in the next few years there despite the fact that budgets will keep increasing. So who gets that budget, right? So I, I think it's you got to be pretty smart about, about how to invest. I mean, our approach has always been to try to find kind of the, the next kind of big area, not not kind of like a little, little area, but, but the next big area. And I'll give you a good, uh, good example. One company that we led the investment in is a New York company called Big ID. Uh, they're, well, they're New York and Israel, of course. And... Uh, the co-founder, Dimitri Sorota, is an advisor to the fund uh, as well. Uh, previously, he started Layer 7 Security, sold it to CA for, for a good amount. He was EDP of security strategy there. He met his co-founder, uh, Nimrod Vax, uh, there, who was heading up product, uh, for, uh, heading the product for Identity, the Identity Group there. And so the big thing that they came up with was like, hey, um, there are these regulations coming out in the next couple of years called GDPR. Um, the global data kind of protection, you know, regulation or whatnot. And I think that, and it's starting in Europe and the penalty, I think is that if you don't follow it, there's a whole, there's like six or seven things you need to follow, but if you don't follow it, it could be a penalty of 4% of your revenue. And, and some of that includes data sovereignty. Like you can't, you know, if your data is in Germany, you can't move it. Right. You know, things like that. And so, you know, they kept talking to folks and people said, um, they would ask the question, do you know when social security numbers and credit card numbers are moving about your, your organization? Like, yeah, yeah, there's something called DLP technology, digital loss prevention technology. And I can see that when they're, when they're going, I can kind of block stuff. And then he said, do you associate that with a unique ID? And they're like, no. Right. So so a big ID does. It goes in and I think there's 50, 56 attributes of what um PII is, including your IP address and maybe your, your geolocation. Everyone's collecting data, right? So what we do is we kind of map all the data in all your infrastructure and associate it with a unique ID. So then we can tell you where the data is located, who's accessing the system, what is accessing the system. Uh, we can alert you if people are moving data that shouldn't be moving the data according to rules. We can look at the data flow and data mapping of how an application eventually reaches the data. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a new emerging market. And, and I got to be frank with you, Dimitri and, and Nimrod were pushing this thing for about 12 months. And it, it was it was people were interested. But all of a sudden, I, once again, I like to say the last two or three months inbounds banging down the door. I, I have, this kicks in in 2018. And some of the largest banks and retail companies are banging down the door right now saying, you know, I, I need something. Right. And, and so. You know, so that in our mind, it's kind of a, it just makes sense, doesn't it? Right. right. <laughs> you know, but, but it's a big idea. If you can pull it off, I think it's going to be going to be a pretty, pretty big idea. But once again, it was early. It, the market wasn't there yet. And now we're, we're kind of helping create a new market um, around that. Again, a, a recurring theme. Experienced people who've been around a long time can see around corners, can see stuff coming before others do. You guys are there early talking to him right dimitri's an advisor so he right. kept talking to us we kept talking to him then when it was ready we we're like let's do this let's do this yeah yeah so yeah so he, he's phenomenal and he also brought us a you know another company he's advising called hyper hypr uh, which is in new york as well and they do uh they have a biometric kind of authentication platform 
And once again, we talked to them about a year ago. And uh, George uh, told me, he's like, hey, Elliot and Ed, I, I have these eight pilots who we're working on. And I was like, how, how does a 10-person company like you have eight pilots like that that you're working on? I mean, huge, huge names. So we stayed in touch every three months. And then um, uh, he came back and said, we converted the pilots into some paying paying customers. And, uh, and, and the point for that one, it, it wasn't the fact that I was skeptical of the biometric authentication market, to be honest with you. And, uh, and so that's why I kind of I had to follow a little bit more. It wasn't the fact that they had pilots. And the pilots were great. But the aha moment was for us just you talk to people, they want to eliminate passwords. We're never going to really eliminate passwords. But what I liked about their platform is that I kind of call it BYOB, bring your own biometric. We are an integration platform that, that creates a, a secure architecture. And you can bring in any uh, iris scanning you want, any palm print, any voice you want. You can easily incorporate into an SDK. So, uh, you know, and, and we keep it secure. There's no central database to hack. So your, your fingerprint, for example, never goes back to a central server. So it's all kind of decrypted, uh, decentralized, and uh, all of a sudden that architecture has been, been selling pretty well. And I think it's and, – and the final piece, it's become easier, right? People are used to putting their fingers on their phones, right, and, 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 and kind of scanning their, their eyes and stuff. So all the technology has kind of evolved to the point where it's become very easy for the customer because it's always been that trade-off between ease of use and security could be a new paradigm. I love this. And it's cool that both these companies are in New York. Let's talk about New York. Uh, 20 years, 20, 21 years, early stage investing in the enterprise, Ed Sim. I do actually now see a little gray growing on the beard there. I see you on Skype. You know, we, we had Jonathan Lair on the, on, on the show from Workbench. The guy's done unbelievable work to build you know, a, a community uh, yeah. where people go and I'm sending my students there and other people are going to that. What's, what do you see happening now in, in the enterprise tech scene here in New York? Yeah. yeah. John's been awesome with, with kind of galvanizing the com- community with the enterprise tech meetup and we work closely with him for sure. I think a bunch of our, co- I think three of our companies have offices kind of in, in workbench right now, uh, some on the West coast and, and some New York related. So, so he's been great. Um, you know, I gotta tell you, it's really interesting. I remember when I was at my first VC fund and Prospect Street back in 1996, we had money from the New York City Economic Development Corporation to turn New York City into a high tech, they called it a high tech hotbed back in the day, like Silicon Valley, right? And this was uh, authorized by Mayor David Dinkins. So this is how, how I'm aging myself here. Um, and part of the mantra was to invest in tech companies, but also create jobs, right, uh, in the tech space. And so that that was kind of my first taste uh, of all of this. And I remember that we were up at Harvard pitching um, our next fund. And Peter Dolan, who's a legendary um, uh, investor in, in funds, um, legendary investor in funds, said to me, hey, that all sounds really great and everything, but tell me one thing. What was the last IPO uh, tech IPO in New York? I was like, silence. And I was like, none. There, there will be some, though. He's like, I can't invest and there will be some. So, so that, that was where kind of like, all right, cool idea and stuff, but you guys are nowhere. And, we, and, and so it's been very exciting to see two things. Fast forward to today. Um, we're recognized as number two in the map, right, in terms of just general startup investing. And, um, and, and I think 
people are, are, are aware of New York as an opportunity to build enterprise because they're seeing that this is where the customers are, right? And that there are some good, talented. T- I remember, um, uh, you know, the Sequoia when they came in and looked at security scorecard. The, the the one thing that was said to me is like, wow, I didn't know there was real tech in New York. Like we're, we're used to doing Series Cs and Series Ds here in New York, not not A rounds. And I think that was very interesting for him and for me to see that. And frankly, the, the other cool thing is that look. At least twice a week, we have someone from the West Coast stopping by our office just hanging out, right? They're in town for something, whether it's LP meetings, visiting a portfolio company, trying to find their next thing, um, they're, they're here. And, and so I've watched that trend. I used to kind of try to go out to the, I, I used to go out to the West Coast a week a month for about 10 years until we started Bold Start. And frankly, frankly got tired of the travel. Um, and so now I see startups coming out. You know, you're talking on the phone with a, with a startup. They're like, oh, I'm going to be out there next week anyway. I mean, they're... Right. So we're kind of like that New York hub for them, too, in a way for these startups. And why are you coming out? Because customers are here. I'm talking to customers. I'm, I'm talking enterprise only. So it's been exciting for me to see the startups continue to come out here. And the, the, the West Coast VCs are putting dollars to work here. Uh, I, I don't have a hard time anymore telling them, hey, I've got this interesting you know, company building out a new market in, in whatever enterprise tech it is. And you know, they don't, they don't care whether it's in New York or not. It's actually kind of nice for them, right? Because, I mean, the Valley is very competitive. Yeah, so it, I'm excited now because I used to have to convince them to even look at New York. And now they're coming here and saying, hey, what do you have that's really interesting? Because I'm ready to, ready to do something. That's been a massive, massive shift that has taken a very, very long time. And, um, and I think, once again, we're just at the very beginning. I, I am so bullish on New York Tech. Um, it's, it's, it's insane. I really am. I mean, I mean, I took the lumps with everyone else back in the nineties. We got made fun of, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you guys are like Silicon Valley, you're just consumer media hub, you know? And, and so I'm kind of like, just wait and see. Yeah. That was, I was going to ask you that what's going to need to happen. Elliot talked to, you know, it's hard to find the early marketing hire. You're saying it's, you know, we, we haven't had that big, you know, IPO yet. We talked about maybe a Series A dearth earlier in this conversation. What, what are what are the things we need to overcome here? Um, I think that from a respect perspective, just from you know how I think about it, I still think we need that one big billion dollar outcome, that that one big IPO, that one big company here that kind of anchors everything else, right? And and so that tracks everyone in and says, oh my god, that that happened, right? And so uh, I I hope and uh, hope we'll get that soon. I think it's really important to have. It just further validates everything that, that we do. Um, so I think that's important. Um, I think, too, is just continuing to build that community, like what John's doing, what we're trying to do you know, with our dinners, trying to get kind of some of the more innovative buyers together, right? Because I, I think that what we're really, really good at is helping kind of companies understand how to navigate and get into large companies. And these large companies are trying to figure out what startup technologies can I bring in-house to, to change change how we do things. And the more of those folks we can bring together on an easier basis, uh, the better off we'll all be and we'll further cement kind of what we're really good at. Um, I think that's super important. And I think, you know, just third part is just education, right? It's just kind of continuing to help um, like your podcast, like your podcast, right, is, is explaining how we do things, how we think about the world, um, how companies are built, uh, the more education that we can do, particularly on the enterprise side, right? I mean, everything for me is the enterprise angle. Um, I, I think that's super, super important uh, as well. Are there some companies in New York that are tracking 
to possibly be? I mean, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but do you do you see some companies tracking to maybe be that first yeah, massive IPO? I know two off the top of my head, which I'm not going to say, but I know two off the top of my head that, that are. Really good to hear, you know, because everyone says we need that patron company, even even on the other consumer side, right? They're like, we still yeah. need a few of those. And yeah. uh, I'm always like, okay, all right, cool. What, where are they? Let, let's see. Are it, there any, are it, anyone, anyone coming over the horizon? That would be nice. You to know, your dollars invested and being number two is great, but let's talk about, you know, market cap created, right? So I think that that's something that, that we're lagging behind. And, and that's to be honest with you. Okay. No, no. Appreciate that. Look, this is this has been awesome. Um, thank you so much. You know, we'll have you back on. Hopefully, uh, when you can report w- one of your portfolios actually being that company. Uh, <laughs> but you no, know, you, you're a veteran. You have tremendous wisdom and insights. I've learned a ton. I think everyone else has. Thank you, my friend. All right. Take care. Show you around. Give you a taste of the business. You know.